Um, I want you to imagine a scenario as we begin this morning. I want you to imagine that you had a, a very wealthy grandfather. Um, he owned lots and lots of beautiful irrigated farmland and sometime after, after he died there was a reading of his will and at that reading you learned you had, had inherited four full sections of gorgeously perfect farmland in Iowa where it rains every year, not just some years. Just quite an inheritance. And you know that after this growing season, it's going to be yours. So you, you start planning right away what your, your management uh, plan is going to be. And before you can begin to implement that plan, though, something puts your plan to a halt. You learn somehow that some new, uh, very large liens have been placed on all that property. Someone else that you don't know or have never met has, has been given, has leased that and is planning to farm it and you're, you're confused, you're angry. Who, who could do this? How can this be legal? Upon a little bit of investigation, you learn of a first cousin, another of your grandfather's grandkids, who has done all this. You go to pay him a visit. What are you doing? He informs you that you are not, in effect, the owner of all that land. He is. But, he says, don't worry. You can still have that whole, that whole inheritance. You just have to buy it. You have to work for it. You have to pay for it. Little by little by little, it can still be yours if the price is right. Well, that'll never stand. You wouldn't like, you wouldn't like that scenario, would you? I mean, how, you ask him, how did you even do this? I read Grandpa's will. I read every word of it that was given to me. But your cousin says, I know it was. But I added some stuff later to the will after he died. Now you're sitting there right now thinking, well, that's a ridiculous story. That could never happen. It would never stand up in court. This would be easy to take care of. Can you imagine if something like that were real and how much you would hate it? Can you imagine actually preferring it that way? Can you imagine actually preferring a system where instead of having an incredible inheritance given to you, you would rather work for it? Don't say no too quickly. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. We've been studying through the book of Galatians this spring. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to these churches he planted in a region of the world that was known then as Galatia. It's a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was treated as if he sinned all of your sins. 
treated by God, the wrath of God that should be poured out on you was poured out on him instead. And God says, if you will just believe that what he did on your behalf at the cross was enough, then God will bestow upon you the inheritance of Jesus Christ for free. That's the gospel, but there are false teachers in Galatia that even though they, the Galatians had received, accepted, believed Paul's gospel, these false teachers are saying, not so fast. You have to, you have to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ, sure, but there's also some stuff you have to do. And if you're not doing those things, you're actually not in a relationship with God that you need to be. Paul writes this letter to fight against the idea that it takes more than faith to reconcile someone to God. Now, last week, Paul held up a man named Abram or Abraham as an example that this is the way God has always worked. He, he justifies people. He declares people to be righteous when they believe what they are responsible to believe. I told a little bit of Abraham's story last week. I've got to tell more this week or we have no chance of understanding this little paragraph we're going to study together this morning. Very briefly, you can read this on your own sometime. The story of God's promises to Abraham is told in in the book of Genesis, chapters 12, 13, 15, 17, and 21. You can read those on your own. Briefly, the Sparknose version goes like this. God uh, showed up and promised some things to an Iraqi fella named Abram. He promised Abram, I'm going to give you so many descendants, they're going to become a nation. Uh, That nation, I'm going to give its own homeland. And then I'm going to bless all of the nations of the earth through that nation of your descendants. We talked about that part last week. Now, when Abram heard those promises, Abram believed God. And that belief, that faith was credited as if it were a lifetime of behavioral righteousness. That's what Genesis 15, 6 says. Abram believed God and God declared Abram righteous by his faith. We're going to pick up right there in Abram's story when Abram asks God. Justified Abram asks God a a question maybe we've wanted to ask a time or two. Abram asks this to God. He says, oh God, how can I know? How, see, Abram didn't have much of a track record with God. No one on earth did. Abram didn't have a Bible to look back on. Abram uh, didn't, hadn't known God very long. How could Abram know that the one true God was actually trustworthy? So he just asks God, I, like, I believe you. He's a little bit like that guy in Mark that comes to Jesus and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Abram says, like, I believe you that you're going to do all this thing, but can you help me be sure? How can I know that you're actually going to do what you've promised? As soon as Abram asks that question, God gets to work answering it. And he does it in a way that Abram will, will really understand. 
The first thing God does is he gives Abram a shopping list. He says, I want you to go and, and get for me a, a calf, a, a ram, a, a, a sheep, a, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. I don't know why one of the birds get, got left off this painting, but it did. And, but as soon as God says that to Abram, Abram knows what God is planning. He is planning a covenant ratification ceremony. And we know Abraham understood what God was doing because he went not only and got all those animals, he killed them without being told. And God wasn't like, what are you doing with my animals? Uh, he kills them, he cuts the carcasses in half, and he makes the grisliest center aisle you've ever seen where he organizes the halves opposite each other. So there's the center aisle between the pieces of dead animals because that's the way they signed contracts in Abram's day. They didn't have paper and ballpoint pens. They didn't have file cabinets to keep contracts in. So a ceremony like this was designed to let everyone know these two people are entering into this contract, this covenant, intentionally. No one could say later, oh, I never really meant that. That's just something I said off the cuff. No. You gathered animals. It was expensive. You had some skin in the game here. You killed them. You walked down the center aisle, and then you recited your vows that you had to uphold for your end of this covenant. You can, you can see what we do at a wedding even has its roots in something like this. You walk the center aisle, you recite your vows in front of witnesses so that nobody can later say, ah, I never really actually meant that. I had my fingers crossed. God says, Abraham asks, how can I know you'll keep your promises? God says, go get the animals. Abram does it, kills them, makes the center aisle, and Abram can't wait. God's going to tell me what I have to do to hold up my end of the bargain so I can get those promises that God has promised me that I really, really want. Only in this covenant ceremony, God throws Abram a serious curveball. He puts Abram to sleep. He anesthetizes Abram to where Abram is somehow aware of what is happening, but he can't do anything. A manifestation of God appears and God walks the center aisle between those pieces by himself, and then he reiterates the promises to Abram. The dead animals, they not only show intentionality, the idea is this, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. And God walking between the pieces by himself was, a, was the way he answered this question. How can I know you will give, you will do what you promised? And God said, because I've promised by myself. You don't have any part of me keeping these promises. You're going to have the descendants. They're going to become a nation. God adds this in Genesis 15. He says, they're going to go into slavery for a few hundred years, but don't worry, I'll bring them back. And I'm going to, and I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It is unconditional. God obligated himself to deliver these promises and no one could mess it up. 
Now, years and years later, hundreds of years later, after that nation went into slavery in Egypt and God brought them out, he, he established, God established with Israel a different covenant. The law. The law was a covenant. And there was a covenant ratification ceremony for the law also that involved blood, the killing of animals. Only the law was different from the Abrahamic covenant in that it wasn't like unilateral and unconditional. It was a contract between two parties. The law said this, you are now in the land if your generations, if you want to stay there, God said, here's the law. Here's what you have to do. You abide by this law that I'm giving you. And here's all these blessings with which I will bless you. But if Israel, if you don't uphold your end of this bargain, you will earn for yourself curses instead. So this one was very much not unconditional. It was conditional. Both sides had to keep their word. You see the difference in those two? Here's how that relates to where we're at in Galatia, in the Galatians uh, book. Paul and the false teachers have a very different interpretation of those two covenants. The false teachers, the Judaizers, the Jewish legalists, they say God made these promises to Abraham, and then as a part of that same covenant, if you're going to be in this covenant stream that God started with Abraham, you also have to do the law or you're not going to be a child of Abraham. That law is still effective on anybody who wants to be in God's good graces. That's why we have to obey the law. Paul teaches that that covenant stream of promise from Abraham to all the families of the earth who are blessed by Abram's ultimate descendant that we know is Jesus Christ That is one covenant stream, and the law is separate and for a limited time only. It was for Israel. It has a different purpose, and we'll talk about that purpose next week. Paul will say, you don't have to keep the law to be in a covenant with God. In fact, Paul would say, if you try to be in a covenant with God through the law, you're only going to earn the curses. That's what he just said last week. Now, with, with all of that as a background, we have at least a puncher's chance at, ex- at understanding the four verses we're going to read today, because Galatians chapters 3 and 4 are really difficult. They just are. So let's read Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, then we'll see what they say and what we should take home from it. Galatians 3, 15, brethren, Paul says, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's, it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years after God made his promises to Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. 
For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. We're going to go through those verses really quickly. In verse 15, Paul's main idea could be summarized this way. A signed contract can't just be changed later after it's been signed. Paul says in verse 15, the promises God made to Abraham and to bless all of the nations of the earth through a a, a promise of grace, God did not come back later and say, well, actually, you can't have that just based on a promise. It's not really an inheritance God added the law later and said, if you don't obey these 613 commandments, you actually can't have what I promised. God would never do that because that would make God worse than your first cousin we just imagined in the scenario I made up at the beginning of our time this morning. Do you see the the connection? If God promised things to Abraham unconditionally, they have to be fulfilled unconditionally. God is not doing the old bait and switch where he makes it seem like being in a covenant with him comes free to the recipient, but actually he adds the law later after the covenant is ratified. God would never do that. In verse 16, Paul says, the covenant we should be focusing on is not the law. Jesus Christ, he fulfills both of those covenants that I've, the the Abrahamic covenant, he is and will fulfill all the Abrahamic covenant. He completely fulfilled the law covenant. And Paul says, what we should focus on now is Jesus Christ. The ultimate, like, end of the Abrahamic covenant. The main focus is not to all of the the, the members of Israel, but to Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the way we get into a covenant with God is through the promised descendant, Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, not by keeping the law. And then finally, in verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, the law that was delivered through Moses did not undo those unconditional promises. Now that the ultimate fulfillment of all those those promises and covenants Jesus Christ has come, anyone who desires to become a son or daughter of Abraham must enter through faith in Christ, not obedience to the law. The law was never given to make people sons of Abraham. The law was given for a different purpose, again, which we'll talk about next week. That's all I want to say about those four verses. The main idea is why, for whatever reason God gave the law, we'll talk about it next week, it can't be to undo what he promised to give unconditionally. And he promised to give the blessing to all the nations of the earth through an unconditional promise. Make sense? During the rest of our time, 
I just want to ask and answer two questions about this concept. The first one is this. Why would those early Jewish Christians, because Paul's opponent in Galatia, they claim to be Christians, why would they prefer the law? Paul's opponents believe, hey, we have to have Jesus, but we also have to obey the law or we can't be okay with God. Why would they prefer that to the system that Paul advocates justification by faith alone in Christ alone? It's kind of easy to ask, ask that question if you put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jewish person. Because for 1,400 years, the law had been their national identity and way of life. The idea that they could stop obeying the law and somehow be okay with God is understandably unthinkable. But understand, they're missing the big picture of why the law was given. The big picture. The law never saved anyone. And we can tell that if we zoom out and look at when the law was given, in what order of events the law was given. If we jump from that story of Abraham 400 or so years, uh, and then sometime after that, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, right? And God brought Israel, God saved, God redeemed Israel out of its slavery through the story we call the Exodus, right? Why did God save Israel? Do you know why? Because he promised he, Genesis 15, he told Abraham, that nation that comes from you is going to go into slavery in Egypt, but I promise I will bring them out. Do you know what didn't play a role in Israel being saved by God miraculously? The law. You know how we can tell that? Because the law hadn't even been given yet. Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God intervened miraculously. Plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They were not saved because they were such good people. If you don't believe me, read the book of Exodus. It's pretty apparent. God saved them just because He promised He would. Now, when He brings them out, then He gives Israel the law for a purpose we will again talk about next week. But Israel was saved by God apart from the law, just like Abraham. Now what Israel did with the law over 1400 years though, is they made it seem like their salvation from God was up to them and their ability to obey the law. Not believing in the God who gave it to them. Can you understand why Jewish Christians would prefer the law, especially first century Jewish Christians? It's all they'd ever known. 
Now I want to ask you maybe, maybe a better question. And that question is this. We, can, we might understand why Jewish Christians would prefer the law. But now I want to ask us, why do we? Why do we prefer to think that our position before God is dependent upon our ability to be good? Why, why do we still tend to prefer behavioral-based righteousness to an alien righteousness that doesn't belong to us, that is just given to us for free? Why, why do we buck against the idea that we can inherit righteousness and eternal life by grace and a free gift and go back to this mindset that says, if I'm going to be okay with God, I have to get myself to some bar that says behavioral righteousness is just up here. Why? Well, for one, we've lived long enough to know life just doesn't work that way. There is no such thing as a free lunch, is there? Aren't there always strings attached? And if life doesn't work this way, surely the one who created life can't work this way, right? Do you know what Paul has said today? Paul has said, he worked that way with Abraham. What did Abraham have to do to receive the promises God promised him? Exactly nothing. He had to believe God would do it, which is not something he actually does. I mean, he had to receive that word and believe it and trust in it. But he didn't have to do anything. I, I want to say all Abraham had to do was take a nap, but he didn't even do that. He had that done to him. But maybe that was just Abram. Not true. What did Israel, the nation of Israel, have to do to be saved, to be rescued, to be redeemed from slavery by God? What did they have to do? Nothing. Read the story. They didn't, know, they didn't know God's name. They didn't know how to worship Him. We tend to prefer behavior-based righteousness because we just can't believe we can get anything truly for free. There has to be a price I have to pay. There's that voice inside of us that always said that just sounds too, too easy. And remember, Remember what we say back to that voice. That sounds too easy. We ask that voice, easy for whom? Because Dave just mentioned on this Memorial Day, freedom isn't free, right? So many of us will, will go to the cemetery tomorrow. We'll spend some time as we have cookouts, right? And eat hamburgers and hot dogs and apple pie. And we will remember, freedom isn't free. I don't, I have this because of the sacrifice of someone else and we will enjoy that. 
But when it comes to our salvation, we have a real hard time accepting my freedom isn't free. It just wasn't paid. It wasn't paid for by me. It was one who came before. So that's one reason. But I want to talk about another one. A second and a related reason why we tend to prefer behavior-based righteousness before we feel like we're okay with God is just as deeply rooted in us culturally as the law was in first century Israel. And when I say us, I don't mean Christians in general. I'm talking about us. This part of the world, out here on the high plains. Our culture may not be the Jewish law, but it is a culture of work. There are few things we respect less than someone who won't, what? Work. Someone who figures out how to get by without work. And I'm not saying that's bad. Work's a good thing. I want you to work hard. But we don't want to be the person who gets something without work. And if you don't think that bleeds over in your relationship, into your relationship with God, you're just not paying attention or not being honest. We want to earn. We want to be able to look back and say, I have gotten where I have gotten through my hard work and sacrifice and self-discipline. I'm not like them because of decisions I made about me. But listen to me. You can't earn this. God only gives this. You will miss it if you try to earn what God ain't selling. He's only giving. And here's the truth about this, this mindset where I believe I've got to earn my way with God. Here's the truth. Legalism, the law, it seems very spiritual. It seems very Christian, but it always substitutes work for relationship. It always substitutes work in place of relationship. And that right there is another reason why this is very appealing to us. I'm going to step on some toes this morning. I'll apologize in advance. The Galatians are not the only ones who get bewitched by this. For us, us, work is a way of life. For many of us, work is life. And because we tend to believe that, we, I would say, usually substitute work and pretend it's a relationship. I can't begin to tell you the number of people we have sat with over the last dozen years 
who are struggling with all kinds of struggles. And as we talk, and I begin to get a picture of their relationships. Hey, what kind of dad was dad? What kind of mom was mom? If they say I had good parents, if they don't say I had good parents around here, it's usually because of abuse or just like extreme neglect. Almost everyone says I had good parents. Guess why? They worked really hard to make sure we had, and then there's a list of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. And they always came to all my games. And that's the picture of a good parent on the high plains. Work extremely hard, made sure we have every, had everything we need, and high-speed internet, and they never missed my school events. Then we talk some more. And here's the picture I get. We didn't talk about anything that was actually wrong. We didn't talk about stuff like that. In fact, if I ever brought something up, I got sort of shunned and beat down. We don't talk about stuff like that. We don't have issues like that. That's for other people. And so I just learned to keep my yap shut. And we got back to work. And, and the only time I got attention, the only time I got praise is when they took off of work to come watch me perform. And, and, and guess which sibling, here's another kind of, but guess which sibling got the most attention and praise from mom and dad? The one who performed better than me. Because it really wasn't about a relationship. It was about work, performance, earning. And if you don't think we treat God like that, you're not paying attention. Our churches are filled with people that want to know, what do I have to do so God will leave me alone for the next six and a half days? And we're in marriages like that too. And we're in what passes for a relationship with our children like that too. What's the minimum amount I have to put in? What's the minimum amount I have to do? And we keep these lists. We keep these, let me show you and tell you all I have done that should get you off my back. But that's not a relationship. I could, take, I could ask for a show of hands to see who has related at all to what I've been saying, but I don't have to. Because this is who we are. I mean, it really is. God hasn't given you a job primarily. You have a, your job is, is godly. 
Just hear me correctly here. Jesus Christ didn't show up to establish an achievement hierarchy. He came to give you a relationship with the God of the universe. And do you know why we stay away from that idea? Because we're terrible at relationships. You know what we're good at? Work. But they're not the same things. If we're in a good relationship, will that work its way out? In work? Absolutely. I love my wife. She loves me. We do it imperfectly. There are some things that each of us do because we are in love with each other that we might not do otherwise. For me, I will tell you, naturally in my nature, I'm sort of a slob, right? Look at my desk. It's probably what my house would look like if I were single, God forbid, right? So it's not that Rachel has me trained as much as I love her. And when I hang my towel up after the shower, and when I uh, put my clothes away where they go, I'm not keeping a list so that if she ever asks me if we can do something else, I go, no, 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 I hung my towel up last night, lady. You got to get off my back. Here's the five things I've done. That's not a relationship. Like, I don't think about those things. I don't even know I'm doing it because I love her, but I can tell you my love for her has changed my behavior. Relationship should lead to work. Work will never become a relationship where it matters. God wants to relate to you. He loves you. He wants, to have a, he wants to be in a relationship with you. If you have a Facebook status, it should say, in a relationship with the God of the universe. But a relationship, it, it, it's, you work on a relationship. You don't work to establish a relationship. How do you work on a relationship? You talk. When's the last time you talked to God? You tell him what's up. You tell him what's wrong. You tell him what hurts. And you know what he will never do? He will never say, we don't talk about stuff like that. That's for those kind of people. You don't have to worry that you're not going to achieve high enough that he, that, so that he, he won't love you anymore. You know, he proved he loved you when you couldn't achieve high enough. That's sort of the way we got into this thing. You cannot earn and work for what he will only open up his heart and give. Now, when you relate to him, you will be shaped by him. When you talk to him, when you learn about him, when you learn you can trust him. And then maybe, just maybe, that should begin to bleed over into our other relationships too. where I accept just because someone's mine. You know why I love Rachel? She does lots of amazing things. You know why I love Rachel? Because she's mine. 
and I'm hers. God loves me because I'm his. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God loves you because you're his. And he's yours. You know, that's his goal, so that I will be their God and they will be my people. Let's, let's bow our heads for just a minute. We'll do just a little bit of work and then we'll pray. For just a minute, however the, these words have struck you, I want to invite you to take just a few minutes and just talk to God about what you have been thinking about while I talked about work replacing relationship. Go ahead, just spend some time. Our Heavenly Father, um, we, we talked about something that really has hit home in lots of different places. I'm confident of that. Because this is who we are. We're really good at work and we're really bad at relationship. We're, we're bad at, at being when we, when we can be doing Father, some of us have feelings of guilt. Some of us have feelings of longing. Some of us have uh, feelings of, of just recognition. And I'm going to trust you to iron all those things out uh, between us and you. But God, I trust that we as a group collectively, we're, we want to relate to you better. We want to relate to our spouses and our kids and our friends better. Help us know how to be still and, and know that we are yours and, and you are ours. Help us to be more like you to those we need to relate to. Help us to open our hearts without the requisite need of of the list and the works. This is really hard for us. It's foreign to us, Lord. Will you grow us and shape us? Make us into lovers of you and lovers of others through the promise, through the inheritance, through grace. And as we relate to you on the basis of grace, make us gracious to others. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time this morning.